Well, it's 2024, the start of a new year. A lot of you have goals to buy your first home, your first investment property. You might want to buy another property. You might want to sell a property. You might want to downsize. You might want to side size. We're going to talk about that today, buying a property this year. Today on the podcast, we've got Rachel Kroon from Sphere Home Loans, who's a show partner of the podcast. And joining us, as always, is John Pigeon, the host of the Property Podcast and newly crowned author of Sort Your Property Out and Build Your Future. Welcome, Rach. Thank you, Glenn. Welcome, John. It's a pleasure, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Now, we're going to get right into it right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, John, I might just start with you. Um, some opening statements. We're going to just spend all this time answering listener questions from yes. the Facebook group. Do you have any opening statements regarding the lay of the land, property for this year, anything that you've seen out there, headwinds, opportunities? Uh, there is a common thing that I'm seeing in the group. Mm-hmm. Should I buy now? Should I wait? Um, so opening statements, it's like we're having a debate, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it sounds very official. Uh, look, I think generally this time of year, not a lot of stock on the market. It's always pretty quiet. Agents maybe are still closed and people um, tend not to list their properties until maybe school goes back. Um, so, which is maybe end of end of January, start of February. So, you don't see a lot of stock around, which is sometimes good for investors because you may be able to jag just that one that's sitting there that needs to be moved, etc. Especially with interest rate rises from last year. Um, should we buy or should we hold? I, I have reasonably bullish thoughts around 2024, mm. and I probably did them didn't have them as much in 2023. So, I just think. The, the supply and demand ratio is really in the favour of the investor going forward or, or even homeowner, to be honest. I just think there's we can't build enough houses at, at the rate that we need to. I read an article this morning actually in the Fin Review. There's, there's three – we're falling behind by about 300,000 homes over the next 10 years, which is – 300,000 is about the size of Wollongong. Mm. So – yeah, I, I think there's. Uh, it's a great time to get in uh, early 2024. I see the markets shifting north um, when interest rates become more stabilised if they're not already. So are you saying that as, you know, Australia is one big location, whether you're in or on the outskirts of any capital city, don't be shy if you want to buy your first home and you can do it, go and buy a house? Yeah, obviously every market's different and most markets in the last two or three years, definitely housing markets around the country have grown, most of them considerably. So I don't think we're going to get that same growth and some markets have actually retracted, but conceptually we'd say the larger capital cities and the larger regionals, 
I think, are those that are primed for some growth. Um, I think there'll be a, a bridging of maybe units to houses because the houses leapt forward in the last few years. So all of a sudden units in, in major cities will become more affordable. But it's not just a cookie cutter, let's just go and buy a unit. We've got to be really strate- mm. strategic with that. And we'll talk about that further in the episode. Rachel, your brokers are chatting with listeners all over Australia. Uh, you help many of our listeners, so thank you and your team. They're awesome and, yeah, pass on my thanks to them. What are they seeing out there in mortgage land the last couple of months and what are some of the conversations that the team have had with some of the listeners at the start of this year? Yeah, well, I think that first home buyers are hot. They, we've had a huge influx of first home buyers in the last four months, but not first, not all first home buyers to live in. A lot of first time investors and people buying their first home. But I think confidence is definitely coming back. And I think I actually asked this question this morning in the team and the the biggest thing that everyone agreed upon is that people aren't, aren't sitting on their hands anymore. They're deciding to make that move and they're making that move because of two reasons. Their expectations are sort of coming in line with where they can buy. They're not waiting for prices to drop. They realise that's not going to happen. So they're buying what they can afford and they're also being more conservative with what they want to borrow. So they're asking the brokers not to use their overtime in the servicing or they're, they're saying, well, we can afford to buy this, but we're actually going to be more realistic with our expenses and we're going to go for less. So I think people are wanting to get in the market, but not necessarily at the top of their range. Mm, interesting. And I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I think my opening statements uh, are more around, you know, if you want to buy a property in this climate, uh, I did an episode 651B and I think it was just me solo talking about preparing to buy a property. So from a personal budget, cash flow, emergency fund, get your insurance assorted. So there'll be a link in the show notes to that if you want a bit more on the ground, tactical personal finance chat, episode 651B, buying your first property in this climate at any age. I think for me, I want you to be very clear of your intentions. An example, someone messaged me just this morning and they said, hey, I've got a, a property, it's done well, should I sell it or not? What would the capital gains tax be? And I loosely crunched it. And this was a family member. And I said, oh, look, it's probably going to be about this worst case scenario. I'm right, but check with your accountant. Uh, I'm not an accountant. <laughs> uh, and then they were saying all these scenarios. And I said, hang on, do you want to sell it or not? And we get caught in the day on day, particularly with a lot of our financial goals. Do you actually want to buy a home to live in? Or are you happy to rent within a couple of kilometres of a capital city where you're living and working and do your investing elsewhere. So that's my opening statement. Like what do you actually want to do? And if you do want to do it, the episode that we did two weeks ago about goal setting, well, let's put a plan in place and let's stick to it. So it's a strategy. It's a goal. We're going to make this happen. I will also say, John, I mentioned at the start, your book, Sort Your Property Out and Build Your Future. Uh, that is available to buy now. It's out in February. So I jokingly, half not jokingly said in the Facebook group, if you're a longtime member and listener of the podcast, that is one part of your annual membership fee. Uh, <laughs> so it helps um, us get the book out there and into all the stores. Uh, so if you can um, spare $30 and pay your membership fee, buy the book. <laughs> yes. And not only that, you detail in the book, John, an eight-point strategy Yes. that I think, you know, 
the unique thing, I haven't said this to John Rach, the unique thing about that book that you wrote and even Chris, the editor, like he edited Barefoot Investor mm-hmm. and he's like, this is like the most useful book I've read about property and he's read a lot of books and he said, I wish I would have known this stuff and to buy our home to live in looking through the investment strategy lens. And that's not always the case. If you want to live in Timbuktu and there's three homes and mm. there's a mine that's about to be closed down, hey, if you want to live there, awesome, do it. You're not going to get any growth. But if you can apply those concepts and principles with an investing mindset into your first home to live in, you'll have a nice home to live in and you'll have the best shot of making the right selection. So all that to say, John, you've done a cracking job at writing the book. You just like absolutely slaughtered it and I was reading it just to kind of run my eyes over it and I'm like far out I want to buy a property like it was just really encouraging and very practical so this episode is brought to you today by sort your property out <laughs> so <laughs> and build your future and build your future I always forget the tagline mm. I, I actually forgot it was there to be honest what the tagline yes yeah no yeah. We, we put that yeah. in there yeah, I yeah, made yeah, that yeah. up yeah. remember thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> look any counterpoints to anyone's opening statements? Otherwise, I'll get you guys fighting against each other in this debate. Yeah, look, we're all pretty correct as per normal, I suppose. It's um, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, no, we'll have a bit of a yarn. We'll answer f- a few questions. Some of them double up, which tells us that, yeah, people are pretty keen to do something, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump right in. Siobhan said, a checklist of everything to consider, e.g. consultants you need, schemes to consider, and actually, I forgot to mention this. The book <laughs> has all the checklist stuff. Yes. But if we just step back, and I think even Josh has um, prepared the checklists and all that because there'll be a QR code in the book and you can get all the checklists of all the different people in your team that you need. Like who do you think is most important and maybe what steps if someone was buying their first home? Yeah, I think Rach can talk to the schemes and everything else um, if she wants. But I think early days when, you, when you're compiling a deposit, if it's your first home, you're compiling a deposit, uh, you're reaching out to your mortgage broker, aren't you, to, to get a lending capacity and see what maybe the ceiling is. And I say, look, see what your maximum is and then work your way back to your comfort level or what's actually going to fit your strategy. And, and obviously going back to those eight points, that's just just one of them. But um, it gives you a bit of a peg in the sand to start with because a lot do it in the reverse. They jump on realestate.com and they just go around the countryside and, and four hours later they're, yeah, they're in a, it'll be a bit of a tiz and uh, don't know what to do. Yeah. I will actually say and it's more of a question for Rach now. Um, and I think Siobhan, everything to consider, work out how much you can borrow, number one. And I would also say as a checklist, where do you want to live? And there really isn't, I mean, you've got a very detailed checklist uh, in the book about when you're looking at physical homes, all the things to look for and look out for. But a lot of these comments that we see in the Facebook group, like there isn't actually anything that magical behind the personal finance curtain. No, and I think before Rage comes to this, I, I think sometimes you actually would reach out to your broker not really knowing whether it's going to be a home to live in or an investment because you don't know how much you can borrow. Mm. So maybe that you might find the answer once we know how much we can lend. Um, what do you reckon, Rage? 
Yeah, so I find a lot of clients come to us and ask for the options both ways. So we would have a conversation with somebody at the start that said, I'm looking at buying a home. I don't know if I want to rent vest or buy something to live in. Can you please break this down for me both ways? So we go back with scenarios to say, this is what it would look like if you bought to live in around about this much of this area, you know, people have a rough idea of what they would buy for to live in. And if you bought an investment property with this sort of return, this is what it would look like. And that might be here or anywhere um, to rent vest. But I think the first step is to absolutely have an appointment with a broker, just have a conversation, even if you know when you're ready and make sure you're you're sort of getting on the right track and you don't have to decide whether you want to rent vest or buy to live in first, but you want to make sure you're making the right steps along the way, that you are saving in the right way, that you're, whether you are paying down debts or whether you're doing, trying to bulk up your deposit, you want to have a clear goal of what you're doing before you sort of start the process. Rach mentioned the rent vest. For people who might not know what that is, what is rent vesting? Yeah, so conceptually you are renting somewhere where you want to live, hopefully, and, and you're investing anywhere around the country based on what your strategy might be. Mm. Right? A, a step back from that for, for the younger folk might be free vesting. We're staying at home with mum and dad, maybe paying them a nominal, ama- nominal amount and then you're, you're stepping out into the real world and, and, uh, and renting first because a lot of people, especially probably Sydney and Melbourne that I spoke to last year, they wanted to live in a certain suburb where their parents have brought them up but they had no chance of getting in there first time around. So they've got to go the, the long way around it, which is okay, by the way, and, and go and rent vest for, for maybe 5, 10, 15 years and then wheel back around into that suburb. That's really the only chance to, 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 to be able to achieve that dream unless you're earning a truckload of money to save. I think the word rent vest kind of does suck as well because a lot of people wouldn't actually be doing it. They would be renting and then investing on the side because in theory, this rent vesting thing would be like, oh, this mortgage to buy here would be $1,000 a week, right? However, I can rent here for $700 a week and I need to actually have that spare $300 and put that towards an investment. Yes. So why does it suck? Well, no, the, the terminology might suck because mm. some people might be like, well, I'm doing my investing over here and I'm still spending $1,000 a week rent. Yes. Rent. So yeah. I think you just have to have a look at your situation and be clear out loud. I'm renting somewhere cheaper where I want to live and the balance that I would have paid to have a mortgage to live here is actually getting invested to grow long term. Yeah, and there's an argument and that's why free vesting comes into it. I can actually fast track my savings because I can stay at home on a smaller amount um, still pay mum and dad, absolutely, we've got to respect that. Or if we want to be really aggressive about our approach to buy our dream home, we go and live somewhere that's cheap mm. and, and, and maximise our savings that way. And a lot of people are going the other way where they're, li- work, they're living in the city, they're living in Sydney and they're spending big rent but they don't want to give up that lifestyle no. but they know that a good investment might not be necessarily there. They can, It's cheap in comparison but you go out to, you know, you might be out to Newcastle and buy a place for seven fifty that rents for 600 a week but you're spending $700 a week on an awesome $2 million property in the city. Yeah, yeah. And you, you notice even with the capital city variances, like you can go and rent – 
inner suburb or, or middle suburb of Melbourne in a, in, a, in a house for like 600, 700 a week. That same house in Sydney costs you 1,000, 1,100, a week. And in Brisbane probably costs you 800 a week. Like it's, it's, it does vary from place to place. Yeah, Sydney sucks. Hate it. Um, <laughs> hey, everyone in Sydney, what up? And if you're listening, Sydney, how are you? Laura mentioned any info or links about the first home guarantee scheme. So, Rach, what's the first home guarantee scheme? So, the first home guarantee scheme is just like a parental guarantee, but the government is guaranteeing you into a property. Scandalous. We'll so talk about the, the, next gov- the government. <laughs> the government is offering the guarantee, and if you don't have the full deposit, they're basically saying we're securing the other twenty percent with us, but you've got to live in it. There's all these different rules to qualify, but you really, um, they're guaranteeing you and you have to, the guarantee stays in place. So you have to live in it. It's got to be an owner-occupied property the whole time the guarantee's in place. And then when you, when your loan has reduced and the equity has gone up and you have an 80% lend, you know, you might go in with a 5% deposit and borrow 95%. When that becomes 80%, you can release the government as your guarantor and then you can do whatever you like with the property. So that's a guarantee. So you'd still have to save maybe 5%? Yeah, generally it's 5%. But I think um, for like single mums and some other There's some other guarantees like, like, the, the, like the family home guarantee. Yeah. There's some that you only need to have 3% genuine yeah. save. There's all these different rules. Some of them will use rent as genuine savings. It's always best to check specifically for your circumstance. But in essence, the first home guarantee is the, the government guaranteeing you. And are they putting caps on purchase price or minimums? They're putting caps on purchase price and it's depending on area. So that's a national scheme. Right. Okay, so just as an overview, I'm looking on the housingaustralia.gov.au website, a minimum 5% deposit required, uh, 35,000 places for 2324. Uh, maximum purchase prices apply. Okay, so New South Wales, capital city and regional centre, um, 900 grand and rest of state 750. I mean, just in our area, Newcastle's regional. Yeah, you'd probably get in in Newcastle with 900. Yeah, we're doing an incredible amount yep. of these. Mm. Uh, Victoria, 800,000. Queensland, 700,000. And these are capital city and regional. Western Australia, 600. South Australia and Taz, 600. Uh, and it's not available in um, ACT or NT because they've just used the rest of the state. Um, But yeah, have a look on that website. There's a webinar that Rach did about all the schemes that are available. We'll put that in the show notes as well. But I think it's just important to note, there's also a postcode search tool. So I'm just going to go 2300, which is my postcode. Newcastle. And on that webinar, it does show how you can overlap and layer those right. state-based and national-based schemes. schemes. Yeah, yes. that's handy. Interesting. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, okay. So yeah, Newcastle 950. I mean, Yeah, you- so New South Wales, when you look at the scheme, New South Wales Regional is taking the best advantage of all schemes. The, the stamp duty yep. higher than Victoria uh, and, and the FS, what was it, first time I was... The guarantee scheme as yep. well. So I don't know where Burwood, Victoria is. I just put in 3125. In Melbourne, yep. Um, 850. Yeah, so you can't buy a house in Burwood for 850. You can't? No. So this is just politics basically yeah. at and this the, point. And the stamp duty is the same in Melbourne. Don't bother. Right, okay. But uh, look, 
it's just an option. And just on options, I'll just read a comment from Katie. Thanks for putting your comments in the Facebook group. One thing that irks me a bit with Property Podcast is that John often talks about parental guarantors as an option for buying your first home. I get that it is an option, but not for a lot of people. I think platforms like MMM are great for people who never grew up with the financial literacy or parents who are financially stable. I know the parental guarantee is a great option for those who can access it. It's a bit frustrating listening to multiple episodes that are how you can get into a home sooner or tips you didn't know about, but just encouraging people to use a guarantor. That's my two cents. Thanks, Katie. And really appreciate any uh, feedback on content. Now, one thing I did do, I was just curious. I put up a bit of a survey on Instagram. Um, I don't know if you all saw it. Do your parents have a house even if a mortgage? So 85% of respondents said yes. And then I asked, do you think they would consider being a guarantor? 49%. So I just wanted to say we are trying to cut as many cats and kittens or whatever that swinger cat. I don't know. We're trying to be all things to all people. And we know from the data that we've asked people that a parental guarantee and even my quick thing on Instagram just prove that it probably is an option for 50% of our audience. Um, And one of the comments actually that came through on our Instagram, there's a lot of um, people like my parents wouldn't do it because of the risks. So we know this is a legitimate strategy that could be available for half of our listeners, but we know it's very misunderstood. Talk to us about the risks, Rach, of this strategy yeah, well, there's obviously risk involved with everything that we do. So with the parental guarantee, um, basically your parents are putting up 20% or close to or what the gap is between your deposit and 20% of the property and that's put as a limited guarantee against their property. So if you were to default on your mortgage, if you didn't pay your mortgage and let's say the worst worst case scenario happened, your house got repossessed by the bank and there was a shortfall, your parents would actually be liable for up to the guarantee amount, which Mm. would probably be limited to 20% or less. Now, that's a risk for your parents if you were to default on your mortgage to the point where the bank came in and repossessed it. Um, I've been doing this for, I've had our business for 10 years. I've never seen that happen in that time, Mm. but it has happened. And it's something that parents need to be aware of, of what the possible risks are before they offer a guarantee. But I think like all risks, the best person to mitigate that risk or understand that risk is your parent. Mm. They understand your savings patterns. They understand your education. And if your, you know, character is likely to pay back your mortgage. So I guess it's only a risk if you don't pay that mortgage back. Mm. And I would always say, if you're going to do that, make sure you and your partner, if there is a a partner involved, both have income insurance because you can prove to your parents, if we can't work due to accident or illness, we're insured. But I will say, like if we chew the fat realistically, like I said before, there's no real secrets. And maybe to buy a property, you've got, I'm going to make five options up. See if you disagree with me, John. (laughs) The first option to buy a property this year, number one, win lotto and just pay cash. Lump sum, bam. Love it. Into it. Number two, get a juicy inheritance. Lump sum of cash, bam, transfer, bank check, whatever, pecs are not checks anymore, buy property. So we need some big capital amounts to buy a property, uh, either outright or partial. The next option, and I'll probably go from easiest to hardest, the next option would probably be a parental guarantee. You know, you can get into a house tomorrow 
probably no cash down if you had to with a parental guarantee. The next one down would be buying a JV with a friend or family member. Which you love, yeah. Yeah, which I've come around a little bit and we can talk about why and how whenever, another time. But the next and the most hardest thing to do is work your ass off, save as much as possible and build up a deposit and cash yourself. And the sixth one's probably in concert with that is to maximise the government schemes. So save 5%, get the government to guarantee, uh, you know, the 15% balance. Yeah. I mean, there really aren't any other ways. And the reason we don't crap on about just buy a lottery and win lottery or just go and get an inheritance is because it'd probably be 1% of the audience that would be able to do that, get an inheritance. We don't crap on about... Um, but we kind of do saving and, you know, getting out of debt. The last episode that I mentioned earlier, uh, a few episodes ago about buying a home in this climate, I really harped on about the whole work hard, save, it's possible. But I think it's great to hear this comment. John, you'll take note of that, won't you? You good boy. <laughs> hey, Katie, thank you for the feedback. We, we love feedback for sure. You know what irks me though? When I bought in 1999, mm. no first-time guarantee scheme, no parental guarantor, no stamp duty concessions. We had to do it the good old-fashioned hard way. So today we're actually, yes, property prices have gone up and, and everything else, but it is what it is, right? If we can't access parental guarantee, get that. Do we access the stamp duty concessions? Well, relative to what, what price we're buying in at, in what location, in what state. Um, the, the guarantee scheme, yeah, it might suit, it might not. But the concepts are still the same, aren't they? Mm. We've got to have good savings habits. We've got to have a good mindset and where there's a will, there's a way. It might not be in our preferred suburb straight away, but it can be somewhere. Yeah, and to that point, Katie, I think when it comes to parental guarantees, people have the least information about them. Mm. So most people that come to us initially don't understand what a parental guarantee is and maybe people that listen to the show would because they we do talk about it a lot but most of our first-time clients don't quite understand what a parental guarantee is but they do understand how to save a deposit or how to win the lottery if they did. Mm. But the parental guarantee, there's a lot of misinformation about it and I think education is really important so people know they can get in. Mm. So, Rach, for the listeners, you mentioned 20% is common parental guarantor, uh, so they cover 20% of the value of the home and the bank covers the 80%. Is there an option for a parental guarantor to offer or to cover more than 20%? I.e. if I want to buy in at 700 but I've only got 400 lending capacity from the bank, can we have a PG for 300 of that? Well, it's important to note that a parental guarantee isn't about servicing, so it's not about your income or loan amount, it's just about the guarantee of a deposit. So if you could, if you... It's about the meat. It's about, yeah. So if you could only afford a $400,000 loan, know that a parental guarantee is not going to help you because you still need to borrow and service the entire amount of the loan. Yes. Your parents are just putting a little security guarantee in the background. It's got nothing to do with the serviceability or the paying back of the mortgage. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, John, sick of you talking about it. Shut up. 
About what? Parental guarantees. <laughs> I'm super passionate about parental guarantees. Hey, yeah, I love and, them. and look, we spoke about it off yeah. off air. You know, I think it's actually Rachel's fault, to be honest. It is. Yeah. I am super passionate, so passionate about, about it. About yeah. it. <laughs> but no, nah, I'll take the blame for this no, one. No, no, but I, I just want to say, like, Katie and anyone else, like, please go to our website. If you've got some legitimate feedback and you don't want to put it in the Facebook group, mm. just go to our website click get in touch and just write to us and mm. we're only a small business like I see most things that come in um, so yeah like we need to look for trends of how to do this better correct um, we've but, got thick skin well yeah we really do alright before we move on you talked about serviceability Paulina asked how do you increase serviceability well the only way to increase serviceability is either to increase your income or decrease your commitments. So serviceability has nothing to do with the deposit that you've saved, it's got nothing to do with equity, it's just about your ability to service the debt. And so I guess a way to increase it may be to pay out a small personal loan or to pay out your help debt or obviously to earn more, but there isn't a lot of tricks when it comes to serviceability. It's just about what you can afford on your actual income. Do kids and dependents would you say loosely one dependent is a hundred grand of buying power? Oh, that would be a big generalization, but it could be I'm around into that. Big generalizations. It is. That's my life. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, obviously, the more dependents you have, the the less you can borrow on your income. Um, but there is, I think, a way to maximise serviceability. Ooh. Do you know, John? Increase your income. No, that's given. But another, I'm going somewhere with this. You're not getting rid of kids. No, absolutely not. No, but like each lender and uh, bank have different criteria. That's right. So if I go to bank down the road and they're like, no, we won't lend you money, go to your team and they could be like, oh, yeah, that's rubbish. This bank down here, they love kids and they love giving out money so we can get you more with this lender. Oh, of course. And and so banks have different policies for everything. I mean, I was working on a, a, a scenario this morning, actually, and it was they had been told they can only borrow a certain amount. And I had a look at it and it was a um, it was actually a doctor and he had just gone into a new role and he'd had three months of overtime. Well, there was one bank on our panel that would allow me to just annualise three months of overtime where most lenders at six or 12. Yeah, right. So it is maximising serviceability would be to look at all the options of so, lender. Do you think in the last 12 months, two years that that gap has, has narrowed somewhat? Because I remember looking four or five years ago, the the high end might have been as high as a million dollars servicing and then the low end was like, I'll lend you 400. Like there was a massive discrepancy. Look, we have software and if we put it in the software, the gap has definitely decreased. Mm. There's not as big a gap, but what has not decreased is the difference in their policies. So it's not if it's the same income, same dependents, same debts. I would say most of the banks would be, you know, within a few hundred thousand of each other. But if you look at what income they will take or how they look at certain things, that has that still is wide. But that wouldn't work in the software. You actually have to go in and understand Keep, each bank's different policies. Yeah. And the other part of that would be if I take all my loans to one lender – would they lend me more than potentially having my loans with other lenders? Yeah, well, now they do. There was a time, and we worked together through this time, where spreading your lending actually increased mm. your borrowing capacity, yeah. where now the buffers for other bank lending is higher. Um, so it's sometimes you can borrow more if you do consolidate it all. Noting that you can 
still have all of your securities separate. You don't have to cross them to have them all with the same lender and get that benefit. Which is handy. Mm. We'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Radio, we are back. The only housekeeping is if you want to keep in touch with what we're doing on a fortnightly basis via email, you can subscribe to our email. Uh, we don't spam. We don't have funnels where if you click this, it will trigger another series of emails. I hate spam. We don't spam. We just send a fortnightly community email blast. Um, the other housekeeping is the name of this podcast is changing on February the something, the first week of February. So that will be exciting and it just will make the podcast more inclusive to all ages. So feel free to share this episode around because the name will not say millennial and it will be more inclusive to all ages because we have teens who listen to this podcast and we have people in their early and mid seventies, I think I've seen. So uh, thanks so much for your support and looking forward to seeing what we do this year with the show. All right, let's get right back into these questions. Uh, Christian asked, my wife and I have almost reached our target of 5% for a deposit. And I kind of tell people like, don't worry about anything. Let's try and get to 5% first. If you don't know how much you want to spend, look at maybe a price, even look at the the website from the government of what their caps are for first home buyers with the guarantee scheme. And if it says $800,000 in your area, well, can we save $40,000? Like, let's just have some type of target to get to. Uh, however, we're wondering if it's better to continue to save and wait for the interest rates to go down. And if so, is it worth doing the first home super saver scheme? Our goal is to buy a house ASAP, preferably by the end of this year. Rach, well, I would say if you've got your 5% deposit saved, it's time to reach out and work out what it would look like if you bought now mm. and what it would look like if you bought in six months' time with more savings. But having been through these cycles a number of times, generally when the rates do come down is also when the property prices go back up. So if rates – I can't understand somebody waiting for rates to go down because if you buy now and rates go down, you're still going to get the benefit of those rates going down with a variable interest rate. 
maybe it's a bit of confusion here because deposits and servicing are two separate issues, aren't they? they? So maybe we're thinking here, okay, I'll wait for the rates to go down. That means I can borrow more. So is it a deposit issue or a servicing issue is probably the the real question. Yeah, and then if you find out what you can borrow now – and if you, I guess if the rates went down, you could work out what you could borrow at that level. Mm. Um, I, I don't imagine if people are saving a 5% deposit, I'm guessing serviceability isn't going to be the issue. I no. think generally it's deposit the whole people up. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And what I would say is, is it worth doing the first home super saver scheme? Well, if you are looking at your goals, and this is why I was so clear early when I was like, you need to make sure you know what you want to do. We want to buy a home to live in. Use the first home super saver scheme. You might wait till the you know, mid-June and say, yeah, I think we're going to do it. We put some in this financial year. You don't have to drip feed it. You can throw that, I think it's $15,000 a year limit into super for the first home super saver scheme. And then next financial year, put some money in. Flush it through once you're really resolved. You don't have to drip feed it. And remember, you can layer incentives. You can layer the first home super saver scheme. You can layer the government guarantee scheme. You can get some stamp duty exemptions. So this is and again, it's a shameless plug for your book, but the book really details. And I remember seeing the couple of pages, you've just kind of got a one or two pages of each state, each scheme and, you know, a bit of a, a matrix. Uh, but you can layer government incentives. You might even, dare I say it, layer a parental guarantee in there. Uh, but they wouldn't work with the government guarantee, would they? No, generally it's one or the other. Yeah. yeah. So good on you. Here's a good one. Brody, apartment versus townhouse versus duplex versus freestand. Other than lifestyle differences, if I'm planning to live in it for the next five plus years and then eventually convert to an investment property and build my, quote, dream home, end quote, what are other considerations I need to make such as body corporate insurances, et cetera? So, John, when we talk about asset types, really you've got to buy it with the investment lens primarily, don't you, if it is going to be an investment property longer term? Yeah, I think so. I I would always buy with an investment lens anyway. That's Mm. just me personally because ultimately if we're doing that, we're looking to achieve the best wealth outcome for us. And generally most most of the time our owner-occupier is our best performing asset because it's either a larger home or it's got some land component or it's in a better suburb. So, Brody, when we're looking at apartments versus townhouses versus freestand homes over the journey, over the last 20 years, houses with land have performed better. Now, historical performance is not a, a, an indicator for future, but it's not a bad starting point to say, well, okay, what do most people want uh, to live in? Generally, they may want a backyard, if it's even just a small one, to run the dog or or have some kids. Um, So that's probably what's going to be most in demand in good areas. So if we can get that in in a location that they're comfortable to live in for the next five plus years, then we would achieve that. If we can't afford that at the time, that's where the conundrum steps in. It's like, okay, we want to be in that suburb, so do we just get ourselves an apartment or a unit? We've got to be very careful as to what we do buy there just for the sake of living in that suburb because we look at the average, and I was, I was checking with someone today, um, we checked a suburb that they w- wanted to buy a house in versus a unit and the 20-year average, there was a 600K difference over that 20 years. 
that's a lot of money, isn't mm. it? So we can't save that. Well, most people can't save that in that time. So there's no one size fits all, Brody. But yeah, in an ideal world, we would get ourselves a free stand yeah. home. Well, and I think it goes back to when it comes to money and property, more is always more. I had a Thai beef salad for lunch today. Too much <laughs> sauce stuff. Soy. Soy <laughs> and too much Spanish onion. Mm. When it comes to food, more is not always more. But when it comes to money, more is more. And this is goes to what you're saying, where you live really counts. If you live in a regional centre, Tamworth, Orange, Bathurst, Geelong, what's another one in Victoria? Ballarat. Ba- Ballarat, Bendigo. Toowoomba. Toowoomba. So if you lived in one of those regional centres, do your absolute best to buy a freehold block that's 850 square metres. Go to town. But, you, but if you're in one of those regional centres, I don't think you're going to be like, well, let's just buy a cheap apartment as an investment mm. if you can afford to buy the, no. the bigger block. No. But and if you're two or three or 10 or 20 Ks out within an hour of a capital city, yeah. that's when it can, you can get into the details like trade-offs and whatnot. Yeah, and, and think niche. Think how many others of these can be replicated? Mm. And, and we think about airspace when we, when we make that comment. It's like how high can they go up mm. and how many can we re- replicate? Um, again, chatting to someone this morning, Doonesborough WA. So for all the WA people, uh, regional centre, uh, a, a guy bought a property five years ago on the water for 750000 Got an offer two weeks ago. I hope you're sitting down. Three and a half million. What? Out of control. Far out. Because it was niche. Gosh. They can only build so many properties on the water in that location. I'm going to ask Rachel in a second uh, what you consider in terms of banking and structure with this leapfrog strategy. So we're going to live in it for five years and move out and keep it as an investment. But in reference to your comments such as body corporate and insurances, you're really going to be paying insurances whether you own a freehold home or your contents in a body corporate. So that probably wouldn't swing more than $1,000 either way. So I, I don't think that's a showstopper there. I will say before you jump in, Johnson, in my anecdotal and personal experience, I reckon most people in body corporates and strata buildings and apartments and townhouses, if you own it, I reckon you need to allow for between 19 and 120 a week for body corporate. Yeah, and I was just going to add... Which would include some insurance. The body corp can be a bit out of control. Mm. So you really need to monitor that. Like you can see it as low as two, 3000 a year. You can see it as high as nine or 10000 a year. You've got to walk when it's that high. Mm. I was talking to a friend who was trying to buy a house in Brisbane and it was a, a unit and she went along and she told me all this stuff and I'm like, the only red flag is the owner's corp. There was four or five. The meeting minute said one of the units replaced the roof above their unit and paid $12,000 because no one else wanted to pay. Mm. I'm like, it's a red flag that everyone there didn't know that that's a strata issue and it needed to be split. They weren't replacing their unit. Um, So you've just really got to watch and understand you're aware of how strata and the strata scheme works. And perhaps we need to do an episode with the strata manager. Yeah, and we sort of have done bits and pieces in the past on that. But, yeah, talking to, looking at the minutes to see what history has uh, mm. transpired but also the, the other owners. Yeah, like I, I have heard you talk about Strata on the property show but I've definitely heard you talk about 
parental guarantees a lot more than Strut. <laughs> you know where comedians, they do the, like the joke recalls. And so, Rach, how would you structure uh, Brody's mortgage given that scenario? Yeah, I think the most important thing for Brody, if it's going to be an investment property uh, in five years' time, is to make sure that he's planning for that with with his banking setup. So you need to have at least one offset account. You need to be putting all of your extra funds into offset rather than onto the mortgage because you want to be able to access those funds later and not you can't draw that what you've paid off up to make it tax deductible again. So just keeping some separation in your extra repayments. Um, when it comes to strata fees as well, um, if you do choose a prop, if you have a pre-approval and you do choose a property with high strata fees, that pre-approval you need to take those strata fees into account. So sometimes you might be pre-approved to five hundred thousand, but when the bank gets the contract and they see that strata fees are higher than the average, your borrowing capacity can actually come down. So I've seen a few people get stuck with that in the last twelve months. So just make sure that if your strata fees are um, more than what one might expect, that um, that you don't take that pre-approval for granted without telling your bank or broker that the strata fees are there and how much they are. So just on that, Rach, if you're talking to your mortgage broker, are you telling them what type of property you're likely to buy so they can factor maybe some of that in? Yeah, so your borrowing capacity would actually change if you're buying a unit to buying a house um, based on the strata fees. Um, so if you're buying a townhouse with three in the complex, that's not going to be a big issue because mm. really your strata fees are only what you a little bit more than what you would pay in insurance. But if you're buying a, a you know a high-rise complex with a pool and a gym, yeah. You know, that's that's some serious strata fees and that has to be taken into account. So if you're buying something like that and you're getting a pre-approval, you do need to let your broker know. Yeah, yep. While Glenn's checking emails, I just want to also add something else. Um, Brody talks about converting it to an investment and, and building my dream home, in inverted commas. You mentioned before about the offset, putting funds in the offset. That is so critical, isn't it? When you're trying, when you're converting to an investment in five years, you don't want to pay massive amounts down off that property because you need the cash for your deposit on your dream home. Yeah, and I, it surprises me still how many people think that they can draw up their loan to the value of their property and then make that all tax deductible. People really need to understand that the only debt that's tax deductible against that property is what's owing against it when you make it an investment. Mm. So it is important that it's great if you can over the next five years pay 100000 extra, that's awesome, pay it into an offset account. Yeah. And one of the sins in property, and I'm, again, a broken record, is- Get a parental guarantee. <laughs> over and Absolutely. above the PG, oh, sorry. Yeah. you need to ideally not pl- use equity for your principal place of residence. So maybe Brody's strategy is, okay, I buy a great property, it doubles in value in five years and I borrow against it using the equity as a deposit for my principal place and hold on to that first initial home as an investment. The issue there is your whole debt, which is bad debt on your own rock, is 100% non-tax deductible and you've got large mortgage repayments. I would say a lot of people that come to us in that five years, so they've bought that property, five years later they're coming to hold it as an investment. When we break it down for them both ways, most people sell that property, buy their dream home and then use the equity in that property, their dream home, to fund a more tax-effective investment property. Yes, that's the idea, isn't it? Yeah. Ideally we want to do both. Keep the investment, increase the cash savings and use cash as a deposit. Yeah, but because you don't know exactly what you're going to be doing in five years, Mm. to cover all bases, just make sure you keep flexibility by paying it into an offset account. Yeah, gold. 
Yeah, and that could be the difference of thousands of dollars of tax savings. 100%. Uh, Ebony, uh, long-time friend and listener of the podcast, how realistic is it for a young person to purchase a first home on their own in 2024? Does Sphere Home Loans do many singles, solos? We do a huge amount of single first home buyers that are buying without assistance. So I have, when I say without assistance, I say without parental assistance. So about 30% of our first home buyers are using parental guarantee assistance. But I would say more, in 2023, we did the stats just at the end of the year, more people used a government scheme than a parental guarantee, which was the first time that's ever happened in our business. So there are so many schemes there now that people are using them, they're layering them. And I think it is realistic for a young person to get in as long as I guess they're realistic about what they can afford. Mm. And where they want to buy. And where they want to buy. Yeah. 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 And I think that does go back to your plan, your strategy. Yeah. Are you a digital nomad? Can you work from anywhere? Mm. Would you like a bit of a scene change in your life and you're happy to move to another location? Sure. That's not for everyone. Not at all. But if you really want to buy a home and you want to go on an adventure, maybe you want to move in the next suburb, the next state. I don't know. But... I see so many people who are single incomes, young people under 30 who are buying their first property, be it a home to live in or investment property. Is it hard? Yes. Is it impossible? No. Yeah. Get and I would and say explore. not to try. Some people try so hard to hold on to that first home buyer thing to say, I don't want to buy now and rent vest because I don't want to lose my ability to get the first home buyer scheme. Where I think I've always been taught that when you get into the market, when you can get into the market, you do it. Yes. So I think if you do give up, I think of people who bought two years ago in a regional area and gave up, forgo their first home buyer grant and rent vested, no one's complaining. No. They've had such equity growth. We just refinanced somebody recently that we they bought an original town rent vesting less than 12 months ago and they did it at 90%. We've just refinanced them to an 80% sort of loan because they've built 10% equity already in capital growth to a lower rate. Well, they've had 10%. They've made 50, 60 grand yes. in their 12 months. That stamp duty concession meant nothing. Yeah, same, same. We just had a client... Um, last week, say okay, I, we bought this property six months ago, two seventy five thousand, came back valuation three fifty. Wow! It's like no brainer. If they waited to to look for first homeowner saving or guarantees and schemes, they've they've missed out on that. My biggest comment I want to say today is, if you're ready to buy a house, I think the best time to buy a house is when you have the money and you find a house that you want to buy. I honestly believe you can't run your life on variables and things that you can't control. So if you wait for interest rates to come back down, I can tell you, you'll be waiting a long time. Sure, they might come off the peak. Sure, we might get another interest rate increase this year and nothing happens all year. Might go up twice, it might come down once. But we are circa that five and a half, six percent mortgage rate now, I think for the next five years. Which is still below the average of the last 30 or 40 Which years. Which is 7%, yeah. like a borrowing rate. Yeah. So the right time to buy a house is when you've got the money, you've got the strategy and you're ready to buy it and you find the right house. Don't listen to your crazy uncle and aunt who are like, oh no, just wait, it's going to do this, do that. Shut up, you don't know anything. It's going up to 18%. Yeah, like... I don't know anything, they don't know anything, 
So that means you can only control what you can control. And that is, I've got the money. I want to buy somewhere to live in. I'm going to buy a nice place within our budget, enjoy it, paint the walls, buy a dog, get on with our life. I mean. Ellen, buying slash selling the next home, sell first before buying or vice versa, things to look out for. So in terms of a property strategy point of view, in a market that is hot and you're in the same suburb and, you know, things are just monkeys are walking across keyboard and selling properties, like you can buy and then sell. But when things are a bit slower and tighter, it can be fraught with danger. So talk to us about some strategy yes. there, John. Well, I've got a very close example that's still going through its dramas today mm. and it's cost a good friend of mine and no, he didn't reach out to me beforehand, <laughs> a over 200000 in bridging loan costs because that f- that property that he was going to sell still hasn't sold. It was a hot market at the time and then it went off a cliff slightly. Is it still for sale at the moment? Still for sale. I know the property. Gosh. Now, what he did, ladies and gentlemen, is went and got a property and went unconditional with a bridging loan having not sold or even advertised his first home, right? So very fraught with danger and Rachel's probably seen more examples what than I have. What was he thinking? Well, he looks back with some regret. You would. Um, and, and look, it won't define him but it's, it's, it's a little bit of a dig in the ribs for him. Um, so I, I wouldn't go as far as I'd never do it, but you mentioned before control the controllables mm. or something along those lines. Whatever, yeah. You've got to do it. You've got to be able to know with some certainty what you've got, how much you can borrow and keep more things in your control than out. I think the, the key to life other than wholeness and fulfilment is knowing your stop loss. So knowing the maximum exposure that you will have. Now, buying or selling in a market, so we're we're selling, then we're renting for a year, then we're buying. I mean, it's a pain in the ass to move, but go with me. You can work out that, yeah, the difference of renting temporarily could be 10 grand a year. So we can quantify 10,000 a year. We can quantify this. So over a three-year period, you could go, look, we're going to be out of pocket 80 grand mm. or 60 grand, whatever that is. But old mate, he hasn't been able to quantify his downside and the downside keeps going until he sells the property. Yeah, so he has mitigated some risk but it's the stress that he's gone through Mm. that is... Has he rejected offers? To a point, yeah. So the property is worth less than what he actually thinks because the market isn't prepared to pay? Yeah, a little bit of that. uh, It's it's a long old story but I think Alan... Coming back to that whole selling first before buying, I would do it 95% of the time. Rachel? So from a finance perspective, the perfect way to execute this is step one is to get a pre-approval to buy once you've sold. So you say, I'm going from a house worth 600000 I've got a mortgage of 400000 I want to buy for nine hundred. So you get a pre-approval for once you've sold your house that you know you can do it. So you've got the pre-approval in place, then you sell your home 
And if you, in an ideal world, you sell your home with a maybe a longer contract. So when you're yes. selling a property, you can dictate how long the settlement period is. So a standard contract is 42 days. But if I was advising somebody wanting to do what you're doing, I'd say get the pre-approval, sell your house with an extended settlement period, and then go shopping. And hopefully everything aligns and you buy with a simultaneous settlement, but you can't settle on the purchase until your house is sold. Yeah. Now that's the great way to do it. I wish I followed my own advice. I did not. Did I emotions did what, get in? Emotions got in. <laughs> I went and bought a house having not sold my own. Gosh. And if I did not settle in time, I would have lost my 10% deposit. Now I did. I made that risk personally knowing that there was a very small risk involved for me. I knew that my house was ready to go on the market. The agent already had sort of people lined up and we did it. I took the risk. I would never, ever advise a client Mm. to take that risk. I I think the example John's using is it's very niche because if it's the house I'm thinking of, it's a very, very expensive beach shack and ideally you'd want to get that lot, knock the house over and build the big F off house, but it's just too expensive because it's worth too much because of the renovated small house on it. Yeah, and, and I it's think, a smaller block of land as well. And I think three to six months prior to listing that property, yes. it would have walked out the door because yeah. of the, the time of the market. Mm. So, Alan, I think there's another next best house every every other week. Mm. You, you just there's you should never look at one house and say, look, there'll be nothing like this ever again. And as a broker, people might be just like, oh, I bet every broker just wants bridging finance. There's no money in it for a broker, is there? No, there's not. And uh, we haven't done a bridging loan for years and years. What we do do though is if somebody can afford it, there are people that can afford to buy before they sell. So some people do buy, not with bridging finance, but they do buy knowing that they can actually cover both mortgages. Right. So they upsize and then they can sell at their leisure. Now, a lot of people who've got a lot of equity in their home and they're upsizing have that luxury. So you can buy knowing that it will be a stretch until you sell, Mm. but you don't have a bridging loan. So a bridging loan is something that I would consider to be a little bit higher risk because the bank can enforce a sale. But if you can afford both loans, if you can buy and then sell, then the bank, you can can ride the storm. You don't have to sell. And I think in that situation, you can mitigate your own loss by saying, if we can't get this property out the door within four months, we'll put a tenant in there for 12 months and reassess. Yeah. But 90% of clients that we would see that want to do what you're wanting to do, Ellen, would get the pre-approval, then sell, then buy. Mm. And you can do it all on the same. You can do a simultaneous settlement. You can negotiate those things. So when you mentioned longer settlement, standard 42, you might go 90 or 120. Yeah, I've seen them go up to one year. One year. So we've had like with a sunset clause that if everyone agrees you can bring it forward, that's a very rare case. Yeah. Majority of time would make it, yeah, like a 12-week settlement. Yeah. Do you know the one thing I love about what we do as podcasters? This is just totally random, right? So in terms of, you know, the clock is ticked over an hour. It will be less when it gets edited. Um, I've got another 20 minutes of chatting to go because you've got to go in 20 minutes. The weird thing is we could end the episode now and we get paid the same. But we just like, I love talking about this. Passionate. And I want to add value to the listeners. So let's just keep going. There's more questions. If you're a a budding podcaster, just do half hour episodes. Yeah. You you get paid the same. (laughs) Yes, true. Uh, Tom, we are looking at being first home buyers this year. Whoop, whoop. To not stretch ourselves, we would like to get a two bedroom house slash townhouse slash unit in Melbourne but could see three being useful in the future. Would buying a three-bedroom be worth the upfront cost for future value? Yes. Or, (laughs) I don't know, we'll ask John in a sec. Or are two bedrooms just as valuable that we could sell and upgrade? 
or is extending to a two to a three bedroom, an alternative option if there was room. So does that go back to my comments on where more is more, if you can just stretch yourself, do it, you'll thank yourself in a year or two? Yeah, I think Tom, there's there's two parts of this. If we're asking is a three bedroom going to be more niche than a two bedroom, the answer is absolutely yes. There's less less of them around than there are two bedders. The other part of it is, which I kind of don't mind, is can we buy a two-better for less with the ability to convert into a three-better? And that's the whole concept of buy at discount, add value, capital growth. But that would be more house than townhouse slash apartment. You couldn't do it on the fifth floor, no. Yes. Because it would be <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> yeah. And but, I think body corporate might have an issue. Yes, but you could do it. Um, in in some cases, depending on the the layout of the of the units, right? Right. Um, Actually, you know how I'm. Everyone, I'll do an update maybe um, next week's episode. We'll do an after party with John because I've got a lot of life stories to update you on. Okay. But the apartment I moved into, the next door neighbours, they owned it and they said when we moved in, we actually gutted the whole internal apartment, took the jit rock down, everything, really, and redid everything. Wow. Yeah. Permission? I guess. Um, yeah. So Tom. Find a two-bedroom house, add a third bedroom. I love that. Mm. But I think what I would be doing, Tom, I was going to call you Thompson, like your friend (laughs) Johnson here, Um, I would actually just get some data on the table and look at the costs in your area. Two-bedroom town versus two-bedroom unit, three-bedroom town versus three-bedroom unit. I would hypothesise I'd probably want to go for a two-town than a three-unit. Oh, that's that's one for the debate team. Oh, there's or uh, yeah, is more, no, more, even more, though it's no on one level 15 with I, a terrible view. If I couldn't convert the two into a three, I would probably go the three in a small complex. No, I'm talking about, okay, what's your definition of small complex? Like four. No, no, I'm talking about... Um, so the building that I'm in at the moment in Newcastle, it's yes. like 10 storeys. Yes. I'm on level seven. Would you go a three in there on level three investment grade Yes. or a two townhouse in a complex of six? Oh, that's, and uh, I, want a, I want an actual answer from Rachel as well. If, uh, if, if, if it was same suburb. Same, same suburb. If it, if it only had a few three bedders in that complex. Yeah. Yeah, the, the number in the complex scares me a bit. Mm. The three bed usually is higher up, may have good views. Mm. I'm almost going to go the three bed, almost. What are you going to do? And if even I, if you want to use your lender's hat. Yeah, look, if I was having a chat to Tom as a if he was a client, I would ask him about if he doesn't want to stretch himself, but being a first homebrew, I'm going to assume that he's quite young. I'd want to know what's going to happen with he and his partner's income in the next few years. Because if your income, if you're at an entry level role and your income's going to go up, well, I'd probably be more inclined to lean towards stretching yourself for something that's going to be more suitable for longer. Um, I'd also, but what I would want to know if you're probably earning it, if you were earning what you're going to be earning for the next five years, let's not stretch ourselves too much because you don't want to be stretching yourself. If you're asking me from a property perspective, I have never ever bought a unit or a townhouse. I've only ever bought freehold land. So I would probably go the two-bedroom house. <laughs> it's a no-brainer two-bedroom house, right? But Yeah, but I'm saying apartment versus town. Yeah, I know, yeah. which made it all complex and weird. But Tom, Tom's like the difference between a two-bedroom unit in Melbourne and a two-bedroom house mm. is a lot of money. Oh, totally. So 
if he's got the ability to go two-bedroom house in Melbourne, absolute no-brainer because mm. you can usually get a third-bedroom onto a two-bedroom mm. house. You would have thought. You can do so much more with and a house. I would actually disagree with you, Rach. I would hang the hell out of there and go hard for five years and with the better asset. Yeah, yeah, but if you want to make children and one partner takes time off work and all that stuff, it goes back to that what does the next five years look like if you can't go hard? Yeah, if you can't go hard, you don't want to blow yourself up enough to yeah, sell. If they're earning it there, yeah, if they're earning their capacity now, double income, no kids, mm. you, you, you would not stretch yourself because you're going to only decrease your position when you have children if you choose to have children. Yes. But if their income is going to increase, go hard. What if before you had children you – Added value, then sold it at a, a great profit. Oh, that's great. Do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've, I've got a scenario and this is what I was telling my friend in Queensland. As someone, and we'll just move on from Tom, if it is a property that you want to keep as an investment, I'm probably hedging my bet and doing the three in the apartment as opposed to the town. The only reason I chose the townhouse was for livability. I don't have to get in a lift every day. I don't have to, you know, put up with, you know, making jokes with other people and small talk and all that stuff in the lift. I, it was more a livability. But if it was I want to move out in three to five years and buy something else, mm. I think having that three-bedroom opens you up to more options to rent it, even if it's near a university and you arranged a room share type arrangement and it just gives you a bit more options or if there's a couple and they work from home, one of the rooms could be an office, one can be a spare room. I think in that regard, if it was going to be an investment longer term, I'd be going with the three. But if it's to live in longer term with no view to keep it as an investment or to sell it in five years, I'm going the livability of the two townhouse. As this bike, he's gone all apartment centric. Now he lives in one. It was, it was no, no, no. But yes, I, <laughs> Emma. So the the webinar Emily did on apartments that piqued my interest to move into an apartment. Yeah, got you. Yeah, got me. And then I'm just like, I kind of cracked it before I moved out of. <laughs> you did I, crack. <laughs> you I left was. your dirty cloth behind. Oh man, I'll update on everyone next week on what happened with the real estate. But um, yeah, I was out of there. But Rach, in mortgage and bank land, when we talk about apartments, because I don't live in any other state other than New South Wales, I know the New South Wales state government, particularly around the outskirts of Sydney, have such a mandate for high density residential accommodations. What are you seeing in bank land with apartments? Because you remember years ago, some banks wouldn't touch a building because they've got too much exposure to that building. Is that still yeah, a thing? Yeah, that's still the case. Yeah. So, and sometimes that can be a small block. We had one recently, there was only 16 units in the block and we put somebody's approval with a bank and the bank said no, only because they had too much exposure in that block. It was just a weird coincidence. Mm. So we had to move the bank. But on some of those big high rises, the banks can only have a certain percentage in their risk profile. So that doesn't, I mean, if you're going to a broker, doesn't that's not a big deal because you just move to a bank that doesn't have that exposure in that building. It's another reason to go to a mortgage broker. It is. You just want to have the choice. But if he's looking at buying a two or a three bedroom regardless, I don't think you're going to have many restrictions. I think some of the restrictions come to those small unit studios under Under 50 50. square metres. Yeah, there you go. Talk to us about the under 50, John. hope we've confused you enough, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) What up, Tom? Uh, Under 50 square? Mm. Well, it's probably more Rachel's warehouse, but essentially the bank's 
get a bit antsy and and property investors we do as well because what can you do with 50 squares other than swing a cat you can't you can't have any more than we did a 32 recently really was it a studio it was a studio it was tiny oh wow i couldn't live in one yeah you just can't you you can't extend you you can only have one person maybe two live there you can't not everyone has kids, I get that. Um, there's a good chance you probably won't have a pet in there. Like you, you just – they just get very little growth if none uh, and they just – they smell. Mm. Rachel, lending-wise, the banks look at it the same way, don't they? They're like if I have to sell this because someone can't afford it, am I going to be able to sell it for what this person's about to pay for it? Yeah, if you want to buy a very small unit, you'll always find a lender that will do it. Mm. It's just going to restrict the lenders that you can use. Um, But that's not always a bad thing. Like the lenders that do really small apartments are awesome. They're still Mm. in major banks. Um, So you won't get – there's no downside from a lending perspective other than lack of choice, but it doesn't mean you're going to get a higher rate. No. Mm. Uh, Remember Katie who gave us the good feedback about the parental guarantee – there's another yes. question here. Oh, Look at that. I love her attitude. She gets a bit of a – she's real. An accurate prediction on housing prices for the next two, five and ten years in each capital city would be ideal. So, Katie, <laughs> you need a clarity call. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and just make sure you've got parents with equity for John's clarity call. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's got a bit of support around that uh, question. Yeah. Look, we know this is – okay, real talk everyone. Today's highs of anything are tomorrow's lows. Just wait enough time. Yeah, and and to her question, I suppose what we've seen. And don't quote me ever on that. <laughs> what we've seen is is Adelaide, Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, reasonable growth. Like especially Adelaide and Perth. Um, Darwin's quite soft. So is so is Canberra. What what's happening in the next? 10 years for all those capital cities, generally they'll go up over time. It's just when they're going up and what type of asset you've got that makes it go up faster or slower. Okay, we've got a couple of minutes before you need to go, John, 10 minutes. Let's talk two quick strategy questions. It's the very last one there from Justin. If you've hit your borrowing ceiling due to interest rates and early non-experienced purchase, which is common, how many times do we do stuff the first time and we're really bad at it and we make the wrong decision? What are some ways to free up more to continue to purchase? Is it okay to pay down PPOR if it's not your forever home or keep in offset if you're going to sell the current place to buy your forever home? I mean, surely that's I, I yes. would probably jump in there and say, please make sure you keep it in offset. Yes, yeah, it's, abso- yeah. it's absolutely okay to pay down your the, that home to enable another purchase, but make sure you've got an approval subject to doing that and you know what you want to buy before you actually pull the trigger and move it from offset into the loan. Mm. So uh, maybe it's just too early in the year for me. Probably is. It's November, but no, I'm joking. (laughs) We are recording this on the 9th of the 1st, everyone. (laughs) But Justin's hit his borrowing. Due to interest rates. Yep. So he can't go any higher, can't borrow more money. Sounds like he may have paid too much as well for what he bought. Yeah, and that's cool. Um, So he wants to buy his forever home, but he's going to sell the place. 
Yeah, but he wants to he wants to know if it's okay. So he can't buy another property. He's stuck with this dud that he's yeah, bought. Yeah. He's trying so he's to make like, the, I'm just gonna He's trying it. to make the well, best of it. So it, what he wants to do in. is pay as much off as he can to enable the next purchase for when he can buy again. He'll probably he might be able to buy in a year's time. Yeah, but he's How gonna is, sell it. But he might sell it, he might hold it. Right. So knowing that he might do either one, if you just just pour, you've got all this extra cash because you can't yep. buy again. Yep. Pour all your money into offset and then look at it again when rates come down a percent and we can look at what your borrowing capacity is then. Yeah. Yeah. And that's nah. when I jumped in and said, yes, just do whatever. I think it's important to note like if you had, if you've got the offset, you're paying for the facility, whether it's an extra fee a year or whatever, you may as use, use it till the cows come home. Because it gives you the most options in the future. It doesn't have more than one offset. I'm. I just think if you want to plow money into it for great accounting, have other offset accounts yep. that are your everyday and your big bulky one, which should have gone into the loan mm. that you can't do because of tax reasons. Stick that into a separate offset. But if someone had a vanilla mortgage, and the question was, what do I do? Do I just pay extra down or save over here? Because you know you're going to sell this house within three years. Absolutely, just pump it. Yeah. Yeah, what what I'd say to Justin and, and everyone else that has a property, I'm not saying this is in a speculative market, but if you've paid too much for it or you've bought something that you maybe regret uh, or it's in a market that has history of fluctuations, the worst thing you can do is pour more money into it to pay it down because you're just leaving yourself extremely vulnerable to the time coming where you want to sell the property yeah, but- and you've and you've locked all your cash into that. But it all, but it all comes out in the wash. But if no, you've got the offset. it doesn't come out in the wash because if you've got money sitting in the offset, you've got flexibility to do something with that cash. No, but if the house has gone down in value and you're going to sell it anyway, it comes out in the wash, whether it's paid down equity or offset. But yeah. you're saying what Rachel's saying and what I probably agree as well, don't ever pay extra down until – I don't know, Jesus returns if you've got an offset account because you've got the most flexibility. Mm. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a real-life example yeah. that I'm making up. You buy <laughs> for 500 k in a one-horse mining town. It goes down to 400 You keep money in the offset to buy your forever home or your next home and that cash builds up, builds up, builds up. You have the idea of selling this 500 k property It's worth 400 but it's not jumping back up to 500. Because you've put money into the offset, you've got the ability to go and buy a second property, provide you got the servicing, mm. without having to sell that property until it eventually recovers yeah. when you grow. But that's on the proviso. 100% agree. Yeah, but that's mm. also on the proviso that servicing stacks up. That's right. Yeah, some veros. But in I don't know Justin's age here, but a lot can change in five years eight years in terms of servicing and incomes and jobs and... Yeah, and that's why I still, if you're planning on selling that property to buy the next one, those those goals can change too. Mm. So I think flexibility is always king. Yeah, mm. things in your control. Lastly, James, is it feasible slash realistic to use equity in PPOR to fund an investment property deposit and be positively geared within five years at a 500k purchase price plus stamp duty, so we'll call it 525 or 520, all 100% mortgaged at 6% all seems possible. Mid-30s, three kids, so cash flow is tight. Uh, he short a clarity answer. call. He does, yeah, absolutely does. But uh, I'll try and answer it within the time desired. I think when we're using equity to buy an investment, 
which is my preferred way, by the way, and, and I know yours is, Rach, as well, the running costs are going to be higher because we're borrowing all of the bank's money. We've, mm. got, we've put none of our hard-earned cash in, which is a great way to be because we want to keep that flexible. The running costs are higher. We've got to go in with a high yield to ensure that we can get it positively geared sooner. So we we need to find something that's in today's rates, if we're at, what are we, 6.5% interest only, rates for um, investment or we touch higher than we that Touch now? higher. I would say 6.7 to 9 okay. interest only now. So we need somewhere between a 6 to 7% gross yield from the outset mm. and in five years' time you'll you'll get that positively geared at a pinch if, it, if we're borrowing all of the bank's money. If we put in a 10% or 20% cash deposit, which we probably wouldn't do, but let's say we did, we, we're going to be positively geared sooner because our loan amount's lower. You know how I've been crapping on saying I'm over property? I'm tempted to go once more and... <laughs> I was sitting with my lovely wife last night. Oh, here we go. And... She said, how's Glenn? I said, good. She said, what's he up to these days? And I said, oh, he's moved into an apartment. I said, but he'll probably want to buy a property next month. <laughs> and guess what happens a day later? In any case, yeah. But, so- I, but, 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 but I want to, and again, this is where personal finance comes into. If it works and you're comfortable with doing it, mm. tell everyone to shut the hell up. Mm. So if I buy somewhere in a regional centre and call it 500000 purchase price. Yes. I'll just pull 50 grand down yeah, and get some LMI or maybe use. I just want to put some actual cash into it. Why don't you use the professional um, entertainer's policy <gasps> at one of the banks and do the no LMI <laughs> waiver? Exactly. Why, exactly. Wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? So, But, but for Justin, mm, so... All that to say, like, I've got equity, but I'd be more comfortable to put some cash in and get an LMI waiver and then... Completely separate, different yeah. lender. Yeah, and if, ca- if cash is no. tight, it's hard at the moment because you are putting money into investment property. So you yeah. do need to be able to save that each week before you make that decision to go and buy an investment property. Yeah, so he needs a high yield for a start, doesn't he? Because his money's tight with three kids. So we've got to aim for a minimum 5%, but ideally 6% gross yield. Now they're out there. It's yeah. just being strategic as to where. I met a guy over the. Um, I don't think he listens to the podcast anymore. He, he introduced, I went for driving with some friends and he's like, oh, are you the My Millennium Money guy? I'm like, yeah. He goes, oh, yeah, he used to listen to the podcast. And I'm like, oh, sweet. Anyway, got talking and he said he owned like seven properties or something. And the guy's probably 35, right? I'm like, huh, interesting. Long story short, mining towns, high yield. Like he said, one of them was like 180 grand getting 16%. And I'm like, like, to me, that's high risk. Yeah, like a broken hill or somewhere. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, di- I didn't want to know. Like, yeah. And it's important to note with those properties too, the, the banks will only use a certain percentage. Like they'll only use yes. 7% even if it's getting 16% for right. servicing. Okay, so yeah. talk to us about servicing benchmarks generally. Um, and I, I forgot to ask you before. So investment property in a high-risk town, if it is printing money, they'll still only service based they on the will, threshold. They will because the banks and, and clients got burnt. I, I remember back in 2007 and eight where people were, you know, getting $1,200 a week rent for a $500,000 property out in Lightning Port Ridge Headland or, or yeah, somewhere else yep. and the banks were using all of that rent. Well, those people, when the rents, everything changed, those people got into a lot of trouble. Mm. So the banks changed their rules off the back of that to say we'll only use what the average is 
which might be a you know six or seven percent mm-hmm. yield. And then talk to us about um, with different banks and lenders when they. I forget what they call it, like the rate of servicing above. So the assessment rate is generally about 3% more than the actual rate. Right. So if you're buying your home and the rate's 5.5%, the the assessment rate, which is your ability to service the debt, has to be at 8.5%. So if you're buying this investment property and you're going to pay interest only and it's going to be 6.9%, you actually have to be able to afford 9.9%, which Mm. is a lot. So with three kids, that could be a – there could be a servicing – buffer there that would actually prevent it. So the best thing that James could do is work out what he can borrow on the bank's calculators and then have a clarity call with John and work out what he wants to do with what he can do. So if James, for example, buying something at 500000 how does the lender know what it's going to rent for? There's an average that kind of gets put in when we do a pre-approval, like an average yield. But we, the bank will use the value as comments or an actual lease. So let's say there's a property for 500,000 and I've got a pre-approval for James based on that property renting for 500 a week, but it actually rents for 400 a week. There's a lease in place. Well, his pre-approval might not stack up because it rents for less. So we always put an estimate in with the pre-approval, but if you are buying a with for an investment property, we also have to put an estimate rent. So it's important to make sure that that's correct when we're doing the pre-approval. Yeah, so the client needs to know what the hell they're on about. Yeah, and, what they're and if buying. the real estate says, "Oh, this will rent for eight hundred, well, that doesn't matter. They can give you a letter saying it's going to rent for eight hundred. That doesn't mean the bank will necessarily use that. If the valuer says, "No, this is going to rent for seven hundred, the bank will use the valuer's estimate over the real estate's estimate. I would rather three average bread and butter properties and six high risk. Oh, that are high yielding? Yeah. Yeah, every day of the week. Yeah, just to smooth out. Yeah. I think what people are more and more looking for now because the running cost of property is higher is these high yielding properties which on realestate.com searches end you up in the broken hills of the Mm. world. Mm. Wild. Well, in finishing, any closing comments uh, from you, John, about all the stuff we've talked about today? And while you're thinking, uh, if you do want a clarity call with John, uh, just search on Google, John Pigeon, Solvair Wealth, Clarity Call, or John Pigeon, Clarity Call. You can go direct to his website. There's a calendar there. You can book in uh, $350. He'll have a chat with you. And um, yeah, there's some examples of clarity calls on his website. Uh, they've been a great use for everyone listening who want to, um, you know, bounce some property stuff off a third party who the only dog John's got in the fight is giving you some clarity about your situation. So That's right. So we can't make these questions up. No. And it just, again, we'd say it time and time again, every situation is different. There have been some awesome questions today and, and everyone hopefully listening today can apply some of it to their own situation or none of it but have learned some things and and that's the idea of it. But the landscape continues to change in lending world, in, in property world, in everything world. So Podcast world. Yeah. So um, just keep at it and and talk the long game. Think what your next 10 years are going to be for you and, and um, take some action this year where there's a will, there's a way. Mm. Rach, any final comments? Yeah, look, I did a quick poll in the office before I came in to say what everyone thought was happening with rates because a few of these questions are around rates and everyone does think that we are going to see a slight decline over the year Um, but I just don't think that that's a reason to wait. I don't think people have this misconception that rates going down is a reason to wait to get into the market. I think the best thing to do is get your scenarios in order um, 
book in a clarity call or get what you can do in writing in front of you before and workshop it together as you get your plans in place. Yeah. And if you're looking for an Easter present for your family, grab yourself a book. Called Sort Your Property Out and Build Your Future. Now, for those old enough, you may remember a show from the turn of the century called Jerry Springer. And he had a thing at the end of every episode called Final Thoughts. I'm going to read some of his top final thoughts as my final thoughts for today. Love can't just be an obligation. People, wow. people, people are thinking with what is between their legs, not with what is between their shoulders. <laughs> wow, Jerry. To risk a friendship for a romance, often a monetary one, is a one-way ticket to disaster. We love who we love, often against our own better judgment, even knowing it's potentially destructive. And finally, deep down, we are all alike. My name's Glenn James. Thanks for listening today. Thanks, Rach. Thanks, John. If this has been of value, please forward it to a friend or family member. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 